I want to ask the rest of you, if you would, open your Bibles with me back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Once again, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 22 this morning as we talk about the substance of faith. Hey, Mike, can you turn me down just a little bit, please? Test one, two. There, that, that's, I think that's better. Thank you. Um, already dealing with some pretty heavy stuff this morning. Um, life is hard. And uh, there's a lot of, lot of things that we have to deal with in this life. And, you know, we may not be facing the same things that, that, Peter, that Peter was facing with the church that he's writing to. You know, they were facing life and death persecution in the church. And, and we may not, we're not facing those kind of difficulties, but we still have a lot to deal with just as people, just in general, just in life. There's broken relationships. There's sicknesses and illnesses, spiritual fatigue, cancers, unexpected trials, broken relationships, financial crises. All of these types of things are things that we are, we are going to go through in life. And all of these types of things God looks down and sees happening in us, and he wants us to be able to turn to him. He wants us to be able to draw strength from our faith to help us to get through. And not just to, not just to endure, not just to bear it, but to actually experience joy and experience victory and experience hope and experience that the reality of his presence in the midst of those difficult times. That, that's the point that Peter's trying to make it throughout this letter as he's writing to the, the church, to the churches, and, and he's trying to encourage believers in their faith. He's trying to help them to understand that. You know what? They, they believed in Christ and they were saved at a, at a point in time. And, and because of that, there's guaranteed for them a future glory that is far beyond all comparison. And he's reminded them of that. He's also reminded them that there is in this life at this very moment while we're awaiting future glory, we have a responsibility and we have um, work to be doing for the glory of Christ that he has called us out of darkness and into his family, that we might represent him to the world around us, which is hurting, which is broken, which is suffering. And he wants us to be able to exalt him so that we might give them hope. But you know, sometimes as believers and followers, sometimes we're hurting too. Sometimes we're struggling. And I think Peter, in recognizing that, he's trying to help us to understand and was trying to help the believers of his day understand, listen, I understand your struggles. Focus your attention on Christ. Focus your attention on the reality of the gospel. Understand that in Christ we draw strength. In Christ we have an example. In Christ we are given hope. That is what he is directing us to in this letter, and in particularly in verses 18 through 22, I want to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read God's holy and perfect word. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us 
to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray for an understanding heart. We pray for a renewed commitment and passion in our own lives to focus on the glory of the gospel and the substance of our faith found in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We saw last week in verse number 18 the first of, of three aspects of what Christ accomplished through the gospel as the substance of our faith. We see that Christ, first of all, he procured our salvation. That's all of what verse 18 is about. It's about Christ procuring salvation for us. That is, that he is shown to be the sufficient sacrifice. That he was, his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for sins. And, he, and he, that sacrifice was made as our substitute. He actually took our place. He took our sin upon himself. This is all what verse 18 tells us. And, and he did it in order to accomplish a very specific purpose, that we might be brought to God. The procurement of our salvation was a sufficient substitutionary sacrifice in order that we might be brought to God through the power of Christ, through his resurrection. Which when you get to the verse 18, this is the end of verse 18 is where a lot of scholars and a lot of theologians begin to debate the exact meaning of the text and where things get to become a little interesting when you start reading through this and it starts talking about preaching to spirits now in prison and, and the days of the ark and the salvation in baptism and all this stuff that Peter throws out there that all sounds a little bit strange and, and people have made a myriad of attempts at trying to explain it. But I like really what Martin Luther, the, the reformer of the 16th century, had to say. He said, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. And I think when we, when we approach this text, we have to understand that while we may adopt a certain interpretation of the text, that it's impossible to be dogmatic about it because there is so many possible variations. But the purpose in, for which Peter writes is always the same. The purpose for which Peter writes is to focus our attention on the power and the glory of Christ in the midst of our difficulties. That's what Peter's trying to accomplish. So when we begin to talk about some different interpretations here in just a moment of what this passage may mean and what I believe that it means, I want you to understand that whatever interpretation you may decide to adopt, if, if the purpose or the interpretation that you adopt doesn't focus your attention on Christ, then you're probably not interpreting correctly. Because... I think even, the, even guys that I respect and have read and, and commentators that I've read on this that I disagree with, they still glorify Christ in their interpretation. 
And that's, that's the purpose. That's what Peter wants us to, he wants us to glorify Christ. He's told us back in, in verse number 15, he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is, and then, so as, as he goes on to explain Christ and what Christ accomplished in the gospel, that's the purpose that he's trying to, he's trying to get believers who are suffering, believers who are hurting, believers who are going through difficult times in their life. He wants them to focus their attention on Christ to understand his power to understand that he is the all-sufficient one. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the one who offers us hope in our difficulty. And so we see that Christ, first of all, he procured our salvation, verse 18. And then I believe what's going on in, in verse 19 and 20 is that Christ proclaimed our salvation. And I don't think you'll get a whole lot of argument as far as Christ proclaiming, but the nature of what he's proclaiming is where it begins to get a little fuzzy. As I said, there's been several uh, interpretations out there, and, and I'll just tell you, is, let's look at verse 19 again. He says there, he says, in which, referring back to the spirit of verse 18, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And we can stop there. As we approach this text, we have to make some decisions on how we're going to interpret it. First of all, is the Spirit, in verse 18, a reference to the human Spirit of Jesus or the Holy Spirit? And I told you last week, I believe it's a reference to the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection. I think whenever you have a contrast of life and death in relation to Christ, it's a, refer it's a reference to Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. Um, I don't think one of the most popular interpretations of this text interprets this as the Spirit of Jesus in, after his death in something that happened in the time between his death and his resurrection. And this is where a lot of commentators and a lot of theologians, they, that's how they interpret this passage. They say, this is something that happened in the in-between time. That would make this very unique in Scripture because there's nowhere else in Scripture that talks about an in-between time between Christ's death and resurrection. You just don't have it. When you, when you see life and death, you, you think death and resurrection. And so... That is the most popular interpretation, is that this is an in-between time. But then you also have to ask yourself, as you're looking for this, in verse 19, you have to decide who are the spirits that are now in prison? Who is it that was being preached to? And then you have to decide, well, what was being preached? What was being proclaimed? And then you ultimately, I think, in any interpretation, you have to ask yourself, why? Why would this proclamation be made, and what purpose does it serve? And how does all of that relate to this odd comment on baptism in verse 21? So those are some of the questions that we deal with when we, when we come to this text. But I want, you to, I want you to see a few things here. First of all, I told you that the most popular interpretation is one, that Jesus is something that he did in the interim between his death and resurrection. And, and they'll say he went to preach in the spirits in prison. So who are they? Well, some would say that the spirits in prison are fallen angels, that Christ went to proclaim victory over Satan and his, and his legion of demons. And, or some are even more specific about angels who had committed certain sins that had been bound into a, into a prison, and Christ went to proclaim victory over them. Others interpret the spirits in prison as being Old Testament saints who had, who had died and who had gone to a waiting, kind of a waiting area, waiting for Christ to 
fulfill the sacrifice and, and, to, and to, do, to complete the promises of God in order that they might be led into glory by Christ after his all-sufficient sacrifice. And then, of course, there is those who believe the spirits in present to be just simply disobedient people who are in hell. So, so those are your three possibilities of who these people are, these spirits in prison. So how do you know, right? Like I said, I don't think we can be dogmatic about, about it, but I'll, I'll tell you what, what I think. I don't think that, first of all, if you're talking about something that happened in the interim, it couldn't be Christ preaching to people who are in hell because then that would, if Christ, Christ goes and preaches the gospel to people who are in hell, that would suggest that he's offering them some kind of second chance. And while that may sound really good, that may be appealing to our way of thinking that, hey, you know, second chances are great, right? But that would contradict much clearer passages in Scripture that, that say this life is our only chance to respond to the gospel. This life is our only chance. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Th- this life is all we get. And there's a whole lot more clearer passages that talk to us about the reality of needing to respond to the gospel in this life. There's not going to be another chance to respond when this life is over. This is it. This is what we have. So, like I said, in in all of that, you have to ask yourself also, why? Why would Peter be describing what happened between Jesus' death and resurrection? And this is the reason why I reject that interpretation even though it's the most popular among scholars. Because Peter's whole point all along through here has been to focus people back on the reality of the gospel, on on the pure and simple message of the gospel. And there is nothing in the message of the gospel that indicates something needed to be done between the time Christ died on the cross and he was raised again the third day. Because if there was something... If there was something imminent, something pertaining to, something that was necessary to be accomplished during that time, you'd think somebody else would have talked about it, first of all. Second of all, when Christ was on the cross, he declared in his final breath, it is finished. There wasn't something else for Christ to do after he died. He said, it is finished. The resurrection is what we point to so that we know when Christ said it was finished, we know that he was telling the truth because he was raised again the third day. And so, so I, I, don't, I don't believe this is something that happened in the interim time. I believe that, that Peter is talking simply about the truth of the gospel. In verse 18, he lays it out for us, that what Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection in the power of the Spirit. In verse 19, when he says, "...in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison," who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. He's talking about something that happened back in the days of Noah. That verse 19 is, or verse 20 is is very important here because it says when, that, that word when in verse number 20, I think tells us exactly what's going on. You see, when Noah preached back in his days, Noah preached in the spirit of Christ. Noah preached a gospel message that God is righteous, that God is holy, that mankind had gotten away from God and was deserving of judgment, and that that judgment was coming. And Noah preached that there would be one way for them to be saved. 
He said, God's providing a means of salvation. I'm building an ark. When judgment comes, seek refuge in the ark or be destroyed. Noah preached in the Spirit of Christ. It was the truth of of the gospel that was being preached, that there is only one way of salvation, that man has offended a holy God, is deserving of judgment, and God is providing one way to be saved. That was the gospel being preached in Noah's day through the Spirit of Christ. And I think that's in verse 19 when it says when, I'm sorry, in verse 20 it says when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. He's telling us not only when the people were disobedient, but he's telling when the proclamation actually took place. You see, the gospel is always the same. The gospel is always the same. From the very beginning when man sinned against God, and God told him in the day, before man sinned, God said, in the day you sin, you will surely die. And when man sinned against God, God said, look, you're going to be separated from me, but I'm going to provide a means of salvation for you. I'm going to provide a means for salvation. And as man continued to reject God and, and the world went into darkness, God says, listen, judgment's coming, but I'm providing a way of salvation. Jesus proclaimed salvation through Noah, something that was to picture the salvation that he would ultimately accomplish in his life. 2 Peter 2.5 says, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This is the message that Peter was proclaiming to the people. This was the gospel. I think the idea that the, the, the Spirit of Christ proclaimed anything but the gospel seems insignificant at best, if not even unlikely. I mean, what purpose would Christ have proclaiming his victory over spirits in prison? I mean, I just have, I just have trouble seeing Jesus, in, in the character of Jesus, him going down and kind of having I, an, an I told you so, in your face kind of moment to the spirits who are in prison. Nanny nanny boo boo, you didn't get me. You know, I mean, I just, I just don't, think, I don't think he did that. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit his character. I understand, you know, those that adopt that position that, that there is a, a declaration of Christ's uh, victory and that he's all-powerful, but at what point wasn't he victorious over the demons? I mean, he's always been God the Son. He has always had authority over the demons. And you know what? The demons knew it. So I don't know what he had to prove. I mean, even in his life and his earthly ministry, as Jesus walked the earth, he would approach people and he would address the demons that were inhabiting them. And what would they say? Oh, have you come to torment us? They knew that they were destined to be tormented. They knew that he had authority over them. They knew that whatever he decided in that moment, they were going to have to do. Now, I think there's a very real sense in which we see in the resurrection that Christ's authority over every power is manifested. And I think that's why, why Peter gets into that here in just a moment. But I just, I just don't see how a proclamation of victory over the fallen angels fits in, in either to the message of the gospel or into the purpose for which Peter is writing. Because Peter wants people to look to Christ and to see that, that he's been victorious. And that because even though we're hurting and we're going through difficult times, when we focus on him, there is a victory 
that we can have in him. Because you know what? Salvation, as glorious as it is and as magnificent as it is when Christ delivers us from our sin, that is a moment in time in which we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and there is a waiting for us of glory in heaven, but he's not done with us until we get there. He's continuing to work through us. He's continuing to be a savior and a deliverer. In our circumstances, he's already accomplished it spiritually when we had faith, but he continues to work through our circumstances to manifest his power as the Savior in a very real and practical way in life. And so I think that's what Peter's trying to help, us, help these people to see and trying to help us to see. We, he's not just a Savior at one point to save us from our sins. He's a Savior in every circumstance. He's a deliverer for everything we face. He is our hope and our strength. I'm so far out of my notes, guys, I don't even know where I was. The reality of judgment for the disobedient is meant to be an encouragement to the believers that Peter was writing to. I think he's the spirits in prison are those who disobeyed in the days of Noah. They rejected God. They went off into an, an eternity of punishment. And Peter's just, he's just pointing to the fact, listen, those guys in the past that rejected God and didn't listen to the preaching of Christ, they're suffering now for all eternity. And those people whom, whom, I've, whom you're witnessing to right now, who you're demonstrating faith before, the world around you that's persecuting and oppressing you, if they don't turn to God, they have the same fate awaiting them. I mean, really throughout this letter, Peter has continued to show the people, first of all, the reality of faith, what's waiting for them, but also the reality of those who reject. I mean, it's just been a common theme throughout this letter. He says, this is faith, this is what it does, this is what's awaiting you, and, and you're here to be a, a representative to those that don't know, because if they don't turn, they're going to face judgment. And I think Peter's just bringing that same theme to bear when, in this passage as he's, as he's bringing this about. And so as, as he transitions from verse 20 into 21, the message that Christ is proclaiming is pictured for us through baptism. Verse, verse 21. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So does that mean that we're saved when we get in the water? No, that's not what it means. I think actually Peter understands, he doesn't want people to misunderstand that, and that's why he adds in there, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's not something that we do physically that saves us. It's the reality of a spiritual rebirth as Christ cleanses us from our sin. That's the baptism that he's talking about. Now, the word baptism, it simply means immersion. I mean, the most simple term of baptism means immersion, but contextually, it has a variety of meanings even throughout the New Testament. I mean, Jesus spoke of his crucifixion, his coming crucifixion as a baptism that he would endure. In, in fact, in uh, Mark 10.38, Jesus said, to so James and John, he says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and, or to be baptized with the baptism which, with which I am baptized? Was he talking about water baptism? No. He was talking about the crucifixion that he was about to undergo. He was talking about his death, his upcoming death. Jesus also spoke of the, spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. 
He says, for John in Acts 1.5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so as, as we look at, at verse number 20, now some of your translations may say something about um, an antitype. Baptism is an antitype. That's, that's a, a more literal rendering of the Greek word that, of which the New American Standard says uh, corresponding to it. But it simply, I'll just tell you what it means. It means it's a fulfillment of something that happened in the past. So what was, what was happening in the days of Noah, right? What was happening in the days of Noah is that God saved eight souls. Literal rendering from the Greek. He saved eight souls through the water. Did he save them by the water? No, he saved them from the water, right? So corresponding to that reality, there is a baptism that we have to undergo that's going to save us. The baptism... In, in Noah's time, was was an immersion in destruction in order that life might be preserved. If you think about it, the baptism that we undergo is a very similar thing. The baptism that we receive of the Spirit is death to the old self and a resurrection to the new self. Romans 6.4 tells us that we are baptized with Christ into death and that we are raised to walk in newness of life. Now, water baptism is a great picture of that reality. It, it's the, we often say it's the outward picture of an inward reality. When we're saved, we are given a new life. When we come to faith in Christ, we are baptized into Christ by the Spirit. And water baptism pictures that for us because we are buried with Christ through baptism into death. And then we are raised to walk in the likeness of Christ, a newness of life. And so water baptism, that the rite of water baptism pictures for us what Christ has already done in our hearts. Do you think Peter realized that? Do you think Peter knew that? Sure he did. Peter understood that. Peter understood that people were saved before they were baptized with water. Even though in Peter's time, the, the baptism was so closely tied to the profession of faith that it was oftentimes the very first act of a new believer. It was like, man, they professed faith and they got baptized right then. But you know what? When Peter preached to the house of Cornelius in, uh, in Acts, Acts chapter 10, Peter went and preached to the house of Cornelius, and as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on the people. Peter had seen this firsthand with his own eyes. Verse number 44 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, and all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And then in verse 47, Peter says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? See, Peter recognized they had been accepted by God. They had already received the Spirit. He says, well, now let's, let's fulfill all righteousness and bring them to that public proclamation of faith through water baptism. Let's demonstrate that reality. The baptism that now saves us is not the getting in the water, which only removes dirt from the flesh, but it is a baptized, baptism into Christ who washes away our sins as we appeal to God for a good conscience. That word appeal, it means to ask diligently. And that's what happens when we come 
to Christ for salvation. That first moment when we recognize our sinfulness, we, we make an appeal to God to forgive us and to cleanse us and to make us new. And in that moment, we are saved. But you know what? We still do that. Not, not to attain to a spiritual salvation, but in the difficulties of life, we can still come to God making those appeals, making, asking for his deliverance, recognizing that he alone has the power to do and to act on our behalf. This, this whole thing here, and, and I, think, I think Peter really does a great job, although this verse is taken out of context so many times to say baptism, the act of baptism is what saves you. I think Peter does a great job in this, in this whole context, first of all, telling us it's not, it's not the removal of, of dirt from the flesh. He says it's not the water that washes you off that, that's the big deal. It's what happens in your heart and in your mind as you make an appeal to God. And then, But notice here at, at the end of verse 21, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the power of Christ that delivers us. It's the power of Christ that saves. It's the power of Christ that gives us hope and strength and encouragement. He, he continues to demonstrate that it's not by our power, but only by his power, that an offended God can be, can be, we can be reconciled to him. That though we may be deserving of judgment, God in his patience and mercy has extended salvation to all who believe in him. Peter wants us to know, I want you to know, that God desires reconciliation with us. He desires restoration for us. He desires that we continue to draw strength in his name through faith as we trust in him, not only to deliver our souls from an eternity of torment, not only to give us an eternity in glory with him, but to walk with us even now in our difficulties. His strength working through us in our weaknesses so that he might be glorified. This, this is what this is what faith is. This is what faith does. But faith is so much more than just, than just believing in God. Faith is believing God. I hear a lot of people talk about that they believe in God. But you have to wonder if they really believe in God because their lives don't indicate that they believe God at all. They say they believe in Him, but they don't act like they believe Him. Because they don't follow his word. They don't obey what it says. They don't look to it for guidance or instruction or strength. How can you believe in God and not believe what his word has to say? If God is there and he's revealed himself to us, we ought to be paying attention to what his word says. This is the way that we attain to salvation. All along, the promises of God have been made, and it is Christ who fulfills them all through his life, death, in resurrection. He is the substance of our faith, the procurer of our faith, the proclaimer of our salvation, and the protector of our salvation, which is verse 22. And this is just a, a statement that Peter makes just kind of to sum up the whole thing that he's been talking about. He says in verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. 
And this is the thing that trips up some of the people that have that interim view. He says, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him, as if they weren't before. But clearly, they always were. It's simply that through the power of the resurrection, that even the power of death itself was shown to be no match for the power of Christ. It was, it was the last enemy to be subdued. And it was subdued through the power of Christ. And Christ has risen to the right hand of the Father in such a way. Philippians 2, 9 and through 11 says, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has always had the authority, but it's through the resurrection that that authority is realized to its fullest potential. And he now sits at the right hand of God. You know, there's nothing you're faced with on a daily basis as a child of God that Christ does not have complete control over. Does he permit bad things to come into our life? He does. But that's the key. He, he permits it. He, nothing happens that he hasn't permitted. And because he's permitted it, he will also help us to overcome it. He is our hope and our strength. You will not experience the hope of faith until your heart is rightly focused on the substance of faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's procured salvation by offering himself. He is the substance of our faith because he is the subject of the gospel. We are, by sin, separated from God and deserving of judgment. And I don't think it's too difficult for us to see that reality when we look around the world and we see society and culture profiting from sin. We see the culture seeking to normalize sin. We see the culture celebrating sin. It's not hard to conclude that they don't know God, that they're separated from Him. We recognize these realities are the result of people steadily turning away from God, ignoring the evidence of his power and the warnings of his word. And we're aware that just as in the days of Noah, there is a judgment coming. God promised to never flood the world again, but there is a judgment of fire that is scheduled at some point in the future. And we have been called as Christ's representatives to preach the gospel in light of that judgment. And judgment's not a very popular topic amongst people, even amongst a lot of churches. I don't want to talk about judgment. Don't judge, right? The Bible says don't judge. God is a judge. And he will judge faithfully. Judgment is the bad news, which makes the good news of the gospel so good. The reality of judgment is necessary for us to proclaim the hope of the gospel. And it is through faith in Christ and the baptism of his spirit that we are crucified and buried with him and raised to walk 
in a new life. But salvation is not our doing. It is the work of Christ from beginning to end so that we might be a part of his family. Through his sacrifice, he has accomplished every intended purpose. He has purchased forgiveness of sins. He has defeated death. And he has promised us victory. As I said at the beginning, you don't have to agree with my interpretation of the text, but you do have to agree with God that we are sinners in need of a Savior that Christ is the only and all-sufficient means of salvation. We have to believe Him. We are deserving of His judgment, but He has offered us freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. He holds all authority to judge, and He holds all authority to forgive. And as I said, not only does he save us from sin, but he offers us hope in the hard times, encouragement for endurance, and joy in the midst of suffering. Because we know our circumstances are temporary, but the hope of the gospel is eternal. Let's pray together. Father, I just stand here this morning in awe of your grace, in awe of the love which you've shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you give it anyway. The gospel has never changed, Lord. From the very beginning, as you've promised to deliverance for those who would have faith in you, You have brought it to a reality through your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us focus our hearts on him, for it is in Christ alone that we have victory. It is in Christ alone that we are saved from our sins, forgiven and made new. It is in Christ alone that we are given hope in the hard times. And it is in Christ alone that we are encouraged to endure. You, Lord, are the substance of our faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Give us strength. Extend your mercy. And manifest your grace in a powerful way that we might continue to serve and glorify you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.